Welcome to Mortification of Spin, a casual conversation about things that count. With Carl Truman, Todd Pruitt, and Amy Bird. Mortification of Spin is a weekly podcast from the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. Let's join this week's conversation. Welcome to the Mortification of Spin. My name's Carl Truman. I'm a professor at Grove City College. I've said before, it sounds good to say that. (laughs) Uh, Professor of Religion at Grove City College. I'm here with my usual co-hosts, Amy Bird, the housewife theologian, and Todd Pruitt, pastor of a megachurch somewhere (laughs) down in Virginia. And we have a very special guest today. Privileged to uh, count this person as a friend. If ever you're passing through Princeton and driving down Nassau Street, he will be the best-dressed man you see. Mm-hmm. Uh, Robbie George offers some competition with his three-piece suits and his cufflinks, but Matt Frank of the Witherspoon Institute is undoubtedly the best-dressed man in Princeton. That's impressive. It I is. Know, it is. Uh, Matt, uh, it's, it's a terrible, terrible lie. And <laughs> in, in, in my church, you'd have to go to confession for it. <laughs> <laughs> Well, Matt is the director of the Simon Center on Religion and the Constitution at the Witherspoon Institute, and in the very near future is actually moving from the Witherspoon Institute, at least metaphysically, not physically, (laughs) uh, to work full-time with the James Madison program at Princeton University, where I've had the the privilege and the pleasure of being for the last uh, 10 months. And I've I've said to Matt, it's a little bit like... uh, moving from uh, working for the IRA to being in Sinn Féin. He's sort of going legitimate uh, <laughs> at this point. Now, anyway, Matt, uh, the same bunch of guys, just a question whether they're wearing balaclavas or not. Uh, it's great to have you on the program today, Matt. I'm glad to be with you, uh, all three of you. Uh, nice to virtually meet yes. Todd and Amy. Uh, they did find me an office over on campus, Carl, so oh. next month I have to move all my books out of my office. and. Oh. And, and head over to Bob's Hall, but uh, is that my old office in Bob's Hall? No, no, it's it's another on the second floor. <laughs> oh, okay, oh, they've not put you down in the what was it? How's it? Michael Stokes Paulson referred to it yeah. as the the catacombs or the. Uh, that's right. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> so my my question though is, uh, Matt, like, do you have to be on campus? Like, like at Princeton, do you have to go incognito? Do you have to hide, or or can you be out and open and, and appear in public there? During daytime uh, hour? <laughs> oh, sure. Uh, I could even be spotted, uh, if I wish, uh, going to daily mass, uh, wow. Catholic mass at the Princeton Chapel. Interesting. Uh, but uh, no, it's it's really um, quite uh, quite a safe environment for <laughs> for conservatives, for Christians. And I have to credit my friend Robbie George, who's been. 32 years now on the Princeton faculty for being a a great catalyst for a healthier environment for conservative and religious students and faculty alike. They're very active student groups on the campus of various religious traditions, evangelicals, Jews, Catholics, interreligious groups, and some that welcome students of no faith at all, Princeton Pro-Life, the Anscombe Society, which is devoted to sexual integrity. So, yeah, it's uh, it's, it's really a great place to be. Hmm. Yeah, I had uh, tremendous fun there last year. It was one of the 
My, I keep saying to her, it's the greatest thing that ever happened to me. And then my wife reminds me, no, getting married to her and <laughs> children is the greatest thing that ever happened to me. I've but, met Katrina and that is the right answer. <laughs> <laughs> I have to say that Matt and I have, well, we have a number of things in common. But one of the things we have in common is we both married way above our pay grades. Uh, Matt's also wife, true. Matt's wife, Gwen, is one of the sweetest uh, ladies that I know. I, w- but, I would want to say, you mentioned the Witherspoon Institute. I would encourage folks. Um, one of my favorite resources that I get updates from periodically is Public Discourse, which is a mm-hmm. an online journal from the, the Witherspoon Institute. And if you don't subscribe virtually to Public Discourse, I would encourage you to do that. Great thinking on a whole variety of issues, but mostly, is this accurate to say, Matt, that mostly the content there has to do with the intersection of religion, particularly Christianity, and public life? That's a large part of it. Mm -hmm. Um, It treats the major political issues of our day from a moral or ethical standpoint, and that, of course, frequently touches on religious questions and the place of religion in public life. Yeah, Yeah, uh, your listeners can check it out at thepublicdiscourse.com. It's out five days a week with essays roughly double the length of your average newspaper op-ed. They are um, available for email subscription. You can follow it on Twitter or Facebook as well. Yeah. Yeah, I get that every day. And Mm. uh, it's Mm -hmm. along with checking into first things and seeing what's been being posted there. I find the public discourse incredibly helpful. Yep. That's actually a good segue into what we've invited Matt to come on and speak about. We're obviously all interested at the moment in the issue of religious freedom. It's uh, a question that I suppose in some sense, looking back, even even to when I arrived in the United States 17 years ago, one of the things I thought was, you know, in the United States, they seem to have the religious freedom question sorted much more clearly and much more definitively than, than was becoming the case back in Britain. Mm. And yet, 16, 17 years on, that right. looks like a, a very naive judgment. Things have changed dramatically in the last decade. Yeah, decade I don't think it was naive 17 years ago. But, but I think, yeah, as you just I, said, I think things have changed. And that raises all kinds of questions, both uh, what should Christians expect and how should we respond to the changes that are going on? And uh, maybe we could start by, by asking Matt about the, the latest significant Supreme Court ruling, the, uh, the Masterpiece Cake Shop versus the Colorado Civil Rights Commission that the Supreme Court judged on uh, a month or two ago in favor of the, the cake shop. The, the man who'd refused to uh, make a cake for a gay wedding. Uh, Matt, could you talk us through the significance of that judgment from a conservative religious perspective? Is it, is it a victory? Is it a defeat? Is it ambiguous? What's your view on that? It's a real victory, but has certain ambiguous aspects to it. Very much to be celebrated that Jack Phillips, the proprietor of Masterpiece Cake Shop, won his case. I congratulate the folks at the Alliance Defending Freedom mm-hmm. for giving him the legal aid he needed in the case. And, and frankly, when you consider what Jack Phillips has been through personally, professionally, and financially these last half dozen years of litigating the case, you have to ask yourself, first of all, how many other people similarly situated are simply knuckling under and deciding to go along to get along, like Havel's greengrocer, you know, putting the sign in the window. Um, 
we really should we should pray for uh, people in that situation. We should help to publicize their their circumstances. Uh, give if we can mm-hmm. to these nonprofits that represent them in court. And those of us who write and speak should raise awareness about it. Uh, Baronel Stutzman in yeah. in Washington State is in a similar situation. Her case is still ongoing, although I was remanded to the state supreme court after the masterpiece kickshot decision. When I say it's a real victory, I, I, I say that because. He did win. Jack Phillips did win seven to two in the Supreme Court. Only Mm -hmm. Justices Ginsburg and Sotomayor dissenting. But there's ambiguity in the case. And when we reflect back on the news we got at the end of June, that Justice Anthony Kennedy was to retire. And now, of course, we're all talking about the nominee to replace him, Brett Kavanaugh. But when we reflect back to June 4th, the date of the Masterpiece Cake Shop decision, about three weeks before Justice Kennedy's announcement. In retrospect, it becomes fairly clear that Justice Kennedy knew and his colleagues undoubtedly knew when Masterpiece Cake Shop was in its final stages of opinion writing and circulation of the drafts on the court. They all knew that he was leaving. He knew he was leaving. They knew he was leaving. Now, knowing that, if you go back and read the case now, You can tell that Justice Kennedy is trying to mend some fences three years Mm. after Obergefell, the same-sex marriage ruling. I think it stung him that the dissenters in that case could foresee the religious freedom controversies that the opinion itself, the same-sex marriage ruling, would generate and Mm. did generate. Mm-hmm. Here was one of them, uh, yeah. and and he's trying to have his cake and eat it, uh, mm-hmm. uh, preserving on the one hand a strong anti discrimination ethic uh, associated with same sex marriage, on the other hand, some meaningful protection for religious liberty. But the opinion by Justice Kennedy in the Masterpiece Cake Shop case is awkward and leaves some questions open and not answered. And so what what then happens is that two or three, actually, of the other justices in the case wrote concurring opinions, quarreling over some of those open questions that were not answered in his opinion. So what we don't get from SP's Cake Shop is a four-square affirmation of the right of all businesses in the wedding trade to decline to offer their services to same-sex couples getting married. That's not affirmed foursquare in the case. The focus instead is on the way, uh, the rather bald way in which the Colorado Civil Rights Commission expressed its disdain for Mm -hmm. Mr. Phillips's Christianity and the failure they demonstrated to treat like cases alike and to uphold the same anti-discrimination principle against other bakers who were declining to make other kinds of cakes that people requested. So in the dissents, or pardon me, in the concurring opinions, uh, Justices Kagan and Gorsuch have a quarrel over just what Kennedy's opinion really means Mm -hmm. going forward. And frankly, I'm hopeful now that Justice Kennedy is retiring and Judge Kavanaugh has been nominated. I'm hopeful that that Kavanaugh's vote in future cases means that the Gorsuch reading of somewhat stronger religious freedom protections wins the day in future applications of the principle of Masterpiece Cake Shop. Yeah. Yeah. And so just to explain a little bit further the vulnerability that is still there, because there were celebrations and, and for good reason good reason to be thankful for this decision. But as I read the various opinions, 
not being a legal scholar, I could still tell that this did not, there's still very much some vulnerability for Christian business owners. Yes. And so unpack that for just a minute. Yeah. Um, to give you an example, if I can find the passage In his opinion for the court, Justice Kennedy wrote this, that a decision in favor of the baker would have to be sufficiently constrained, lest all purveyors of goods and services who object to gay marriages for moral and religious reasons, in effect, be allowed to put up signs saying, no goods or services will be sold if they will be used for gay marriages, something that would impose a serious stigma on gay persons. Well, you know, (laughs) that's, that's, that's what... Lawyers would call dicta. Yeah, that's a that huge is, opening there. Yeah, but it does, it expresses a worrisome limitation on claims of religious freedom that Justice Kennedy would be ready to countenance. And so I think yeah. we have to hope and pray that a Justice Kavanaugh reads the principles in the case somewhat differently. And, and, and frankly, um, if it takes a kind of you know, future opinion in, in the next case that cabins some of Kennedy's reasoning in Masterpiece Cake Shop and says, no, this is what we really mean now. Because I, I, think, it's, I think it's very, very important that florists, photographers, and other, other vendors who cannot obviously bring their claims in association with a, a, a sort of ex- symbolic expression dimension, you know, a, a, a freedom right. of speech mm-hmm. claim that they win too. I mean, they, they too, frankly, what, what Kennedy denies, I would affirm we should be allowed if we're in this business to put up signs saying mm-hmm. we don't serve gay weddings. Right. Even if it's just, you know, making the canapes just mm-hmm. as you would for any other wedding. And it's, it's not a form of discrimination. This was important as well. came to light, especially in Gorsuch's concurrence. Jack Phillips did not discriminate against anyone right. in this case on the basis of his or her sexual orientation. Uh, he was perfectly willing to sell goods and services to gay people, right. but just not to affirm with his deeds that this, in fact, is a wedding. Right. What do you think that a case like this has um, done as the world is watching this happen? I've noticed just this word freedom being used so differently by different people. And so I've really noticed just how cultural changes and the shifting of attitudes on even what we think is virtuous about freedom. How would you say that that's related to religious liberty? Well, I mean, what, what we have are competing freedoms or competing notions of freedom. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, for me, as a scholar of constitutional law who attaches himself to the text and to its original meaning, these things are easily resolved by, by noticing, you know, reminding ourselves that the free exercise of religion is in the First Amendment. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the, the freedom to hold yourself out in the world as a person with a certain sexual orientation and the freedom, if this is a freedom, uh, to compel others right. uh, to respect that aspect of your self-proclaimed identity, uh, that's not in the Constitution. Right. It's, it's just not. in it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, when Justice Kennedy worries aloud in the Masterpiece Cake Shop decision about imposing a stigma on gay persons, the idea that such a stigma is cognizable in constitutional law is a sheer invention of his own from the last 20 years mm-hmm. uh, in which he was the author of all the principal 
gay rights victories yeah. at the Supreme Court since the mid-1990s. Mm -hmm. Do you think it's a worrying trend, Matt, that the concept of dignity, if you like, is coming to dominate so much legal and political discussion at the moment in a way that, from what you've just said, is... It may not be in the Constitution, but it looks set to be very corrosive in terms of how the Constitution is applied or understood. Yes, and here we encounter a, a distortion of what dignity is and what dignity means. Our friend Robbie George is, is very attached to that word and its proper signification that, that we're all devoted, and this, this goes for people across various religious belief systems or you know, no religion at all. But, you know, people who believe as we do, for instance, about the right to life of the unborn, we're devoted to the inherent and equal dignity of every human person as made in the image and likeness of God. That's a dignity I can get behind. Mm -hmm. uh, in, in, I think it was in Obergefell, if memory serves, that Justice Clarence Thomas in dissent from Justice Kennedy's dignity-based rationale for same-sex marriage, observed that dignity is not something that the, that the government can confer or take away by issuing marriage licenses, for instance. That dignity is inherent in humanity. And so, for instance, slaves themselves were not, strictly speaking, uh, deprived of their dignity. It's just that those who enslaved them and those who defended slavery in that system were failing to recognize, mm -hmm. were violating their dignity. Their dignity was their argument for their freedom. Their mm -hmm. dignity was bound up with their humanity and their equality to other creatures made like themselves in the image of God. Mm -hmm. When we see uh, that uh, sexual orientation and gender identity come to be the basis of claims of dignity, what we're really seeing there is uh, a kind of perversion of, uh, of our autonomy in mm. which people say that as, as autonomous actors, they're entitled to make their own reality or create their own persona in the world and compel others to recognize them as they view themselves and that that's what, what their dignity is bound up in. Right. Uh, of course, for the Christian, this means that people get to valorize their sins or their sinful predilections and insist that that's, that's the basis of their, their dignity claims, their dignitarian claims, we say now. That's a really good distinction. I, one question that, that's come to mind, I found a very curious uh, dynamic happening in the days after Obergefell and, and, and before that, which is I, I met here and there a few Christian conservatives who had no problem with Obergefell because in their mind, well, I don't care what the state does in regard to marriage. I see it differently. I see it in this way. And so I don't care if the state grants that homosexuals have the right to marry because that doesn't change my view of it at all. How would you respond to that in terms of helping them understand that what was happening in Obergefell was much more uh, comprehensive than simply than simply that one kind of narrow issue? Yeah, I, I think that I think that there's a mistake that I've I, I heard libertarians make similar mm -hmm. observations. And uh, the idea is that, that one might, for instance, wholly privatize marriage right. or uh, relegate it entirely to churches to, to say uh, what marriage is. And, and you could, as though you could eliminate marriage, spousal relations, 
parental relations as well uh, from the law. I think that's a sort of a crazy utopian yes. idea. I think that there's no civilization above the level of, you know, primitive Aboriginal tribes in certain faraway corners of the world uh, that has failed to embody the marital relation and all that follows from it in terms of familial relations to embody that in its legal order. It matters who's married to whom legally. Right. It matters who is a parent of another. And uh, I, we're just not going to disentangle these things uh, from the law. So it would be a wholesale, you know, you would just have to sort of dynamite the edifice of family law mm. to accomplish this. And when you see that it spins out into so many other things in commerce in foster care and adoption, in divorce and custody, in parental rights vis-a-vis children in schools mm-hmm. and in camps and, uh, you know, away at colleges if they're still minors. Yeah, there's, um, it, it all matters. Right. It all matters. And, and now, of course, you know, there are related issues like, like surrogacy and, and what can only be described as the sale of women's bodies right. to provide children for a fee to same-sex couples who are incapable by nature of producing their own. Yeah. These things, too, follow from, you know, this kind of um, disruption that's introduced into the meaning of marriage in the law. Yeah, it really kind of makes you think that this, there's such a natural law argument here because you know there really is a moral obligation on every person to pursue truth, and that you know freedom really is is freedom to do right, <laughs> to find yeah. truth, and to do what's good, yeah. and um, yeah. and not freedom to you know do whatever your greatest desire is that doesn't just affect yourself. Mm-hmm. That's right. And, and, you know, it doesn't follow that every vice needs to be made a crime. I mean, uh, Thomas right. Aquinas was very clear on this. Right. But Amy's right. Freedom to follow the good is authentic freedom. And anything that deviates is properly called license. En- enslavement. Uh, it's right. Yeah. Yeah. You become enslaved to a false idea or to a passion. And as for, yeah, the, the natural law arguments here, which, which again, travel across religious traditions. They're not, natural law is right. just not a not just a Catholic thing. There's been a great revival of it in Jewish and Protestant thinking in recent years. But these arguments, you know, without reference to categories of religion or theology are explained very well in books by friends of mine, like uh, What is Marriage by Robbie George, Ryan Anderson, and Sharif Girgis. In mm-hmm. uh, Ryan's book, Truth Overruled, his recent book, When Harry Became Sally, mm-hmm. on the transgender phenomenon. To think these things through from the perspective of what nature and reason tell us about the goods for human persons is, is really, it's a recovery we need to, to work on. One thing, Matt, uh, we're sort of coming towards the end now, but I noticed you mentioned earlier on, just in passing, uh, Vaclav Havel's famous essay, The Power of the Powerless. I mean, one of the, the questions that comes to my mind is, on one level, there are the, the big Supreme Court cases that are being decided. But there's also, as we've alluded to a number of times in this program, uh, there's the wider cultural context. And there's a sense in which sometimes the, the individual Christian or the individual con- congregation can feel completely overwhelmed by what appears to be a tidal wave of cultural change hammering towards the shore. And we're standing on the sand, staring at this thing, wondering what on earth we can do. 
what would you suggest as ways that the the individual Christian or the the small local congregation, what policies can they adopt? What can they do to help try to turn back the the cultural tide? Wow, it's a great question. I think that they it's a it's a difficult pastoral problem for for church leaders in many places. I think that those Leaders have to have to stick to their creeds and doctrines and not acquiesce in in changing those under pressure under fire. Yeah. Uh, and and I think that, but but more than that, there has to be a constant reiteration of what Christian love means, which is mm. is not you know mere acceptance of every claim that presents itself, mm. but a, but a love that wills the good of the other, mm-hmm. even if it is not the good that that other is willing for himself or herself. Mm -hmm. And so I think that ministries that particularly reach out to victims of the sexual revolution, Mm -hmm. victims of human trafficking and of child sexual abuse, but also uh, to people who are gender confused or or same-sex attracted and are open to a pastoral appeal to live another way. Organizations like Courage in the Catholic Church. I know that that in the Protestant world, there's a great deal of controversy right now over a conference that's called Revoice uh, that involves folks like Ron Belgao and Wesley Hill. Uh Um, What's actually good about the conversation that's taking place there between folks like Belgao and Hill on one side and Benny Burke on the other is that at least they're approaching the problem in the right Christian spirit of trying to f- trying to figure out exactly how scripture theology doctrine speaks sensibly to the troubles people experience and in, uh, in what is you know a very troubled sexual culture today and those conversations should continue without rancor and without acrimony there's plenty of that that's going to be coming to the churches and to the faithful from other quarters, and Indeed. Uh, we should keep it civil among ourselves as we try to figure this out. But it's really important work. That's a good word. It's a good word, and I'm especially struck by those two things that uh, that Matt just mentioned about the very simple kind of straightforward counsel. Well, first of all, churches ought to really maintain their historic confessions. Um, there, there's a wonderful practicality and pastoral sensitivity to that action of churches actually being faithful to their confessions that I think we we cannot just assume, but we, we have to constantly go back to and reaffirm. So that's good. Um, Matt, this has been a really helpful conversation, and we're so thankful just to get a little light shed from a legal scholar on some of these things that we're seeing very much in the news, but oftentimes many of us don't have the, the background or, or the training or the education to navigate all of the various uh, issues related to them, like Obergefell and, and, and the recent um, decision regarding the Masterpiece Bakery. So thank you so much for talking with us about that, answering some of our questions. Um, we really appreciate your insight. And uh, again, our guest has been Matt Frank of the Witherspoon Institute and moving to the Madison uh, program at Princeton University, which is a good thing. And so Godspeed on that. And, and we hope that uh, that your time will be really rewarding there at Madison. Tell Robbie George that we said hi. We'd love for him to come on board here sometime and play the banjo. I, I'll do that. <laughs> uh, just uh, just don't ask me to sing. 
<laughs> I, I'm sure. I'm sure that Carl can chime in on the choruses. Uh, oh, my harmonies are legendary. <laughs> so, <laughs> <laughs> it was really great to be with you all today. Thank you, Amy. Uh, God, thank you, Carl. Absolutely. Well, we're we're so happy that you joined us today for Mortification of Spin. We are a listener-supported podcast, and so we'd love for you to go to our website, mortificationofspin.org, and see where you can donate so that the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals can continue their work of encouraging and equipping churches we do have a premium to give away in connection with our conversation with matt frank it is a book entitled religious freedom why now defending an embattled human right and if you would like a copy of that book again go to mortificationofspin.org and register to win a copy of this book religious freedom why now well we look forward to seeing you, talking to you, that is, next time. For uh, my, uh, my co-hosts, Amy and Carl, thank you for joining us. They seek him here, they seek him there, his clothes are loud, but never square. It will make or break him, so he's got to buy the best, because he's a dedicated follower of fashion. Thanks for listening to Mortification of Spin, a podcast of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. Visit the podcast page and blog at mortificationofspin.org, where we'll have links and other articles from Amy, Carl, and Todd. And while you're there, please subscribe and consider making a donation. And be sure to listen next time when Carl, Todd, and Amy talk about... I'm able to tell the difference between an anxiety that I can understand Mm -hmm. and that I can go, you know... I haven't prayed for five days. I haven't been in the Word for five days. I can connect dots then as to why I'm anxious. We'll talk to you next time on Mortification of Spin. Sunday morning, Carl, Carl didn't know whether to look at the screen with the words or the hymnal. He was sort of, I was, I was sitting in the congregation mm-hmm. with my son and we were laughing because like he was half standing towards the congregation, half look at the screen. You can tell he's having a conniption inside of the screen. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You have to understand with, with, with Carl, he still tells time by looking at the position of the sun. Mm-hmm. And so um, that's, he struggles a little bit.